0: Support for this podcast comes from JCPenney. This holiday, our in-person gatherings may be a bit more intimate, and our virtual ones, bigger than ever. But no matter how traditions change, what's most important is celebrating special moments with the people who matter most. JCPenney has all the best gifts, all in one place, making it easy to send your warmest season's greetings to loved ones near and far. Looking for the perfect gifts for everyone on your list? We'll be back soon with some of our top gift picks. Joy, comfort, peace. JCPenney.
1: Welcome to the show, everybody. Quick note, there's just a little bit of confusion with the Myco meditations site. Just for clarification, if you're interested in coming to a private psilocybin retreat in Jamaica with me and 15 other Here We Are podcast listeners and having an amazing, incredible experience journeys within journeys, trips within a trip that you will never forget on January 18th through 25th. So it says Shane Moss Private Retreat. When you go to the site that is specifically meant to deter people who don't know who I am. So it's it's just us. It's all uh, people like you good folks who already kind of know a lot of my take on things, and are interested in hanging out with me, so it's not some weird thing where someone goes to Jamaica, and then I was like, who is this guy, and why is there a comedian at my mushroom retreat? Well, I'm trying to help treat my depression and there's a comedian is he going to make fun of us that's uh that's some weird stuff i've had to deal with in the past with the retreat so that's why it says private it's just to deter you if you're listening to this you are welcome to come to that retreat and encouraged so it just says private to deter people that don't know me clarification there so uh with that i i hope uh you have a chance to check it out i think it's absolutely incredible man i've had such an incredible journey the last uh getting to go to europe for a month and all of the uh different festivals and the breaking convention seeing all the new research going out with psychedelic therapy is just has me really fired up again and excited about all of this stuff so um so yeah if that's something you're interested in You can go to my website, shanemoss.com, or you can go to mycomeditations.com and find out more. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm at the Northern Kentucky University talking with Vice President for Health Innovation and Saint Elizabeth Healthcare Executive Director of the Institute for Health Innovation, Valerie Hardcastle, is joining me today.
2: Thank you for having me. Yeah,
1: that was a little bit of a mouthful. Yes, you got it's a you very got a lot time. of stuff going on. You got a, a zillion books that you've written. You do. Uh, you do a a ton of things, and I know we're going to be talking um, kind of a, a little bit about pain and opiates, uh, right? Yes. Today, and uh, but I was wondering if first before we get into all of that, which um which er- everyone's in is it's a big topic these days. Yes, and it is. People are going yes, to be very is. interested. But let's uh, let's give people kind of a a little bit of a broader picture of who you are, what you do, some of your background, some of your history, how how you got to be here.
2: Okay. Okay. Um, well, in many ways, I think my history is fairly standard for people who work in academia. Um, although what I study, I think, is a little bit different. So I started out in the field of cognitive science, um, back in the mid 80s, when cognitive science was just coming out. Um, and I probably would have majored in something like computational or cognitive neuropsychology had that been an actual thing that one could major in back then, but it wasn't. And so what I was interested in and still remain interested in is the connection between brain and behavior. Um, and in particular, the connection between how we think about things, how we understand the world, how we see the world, how we experience the world, and what's going on in the brain. Mm. Um, but one thing that's happened to me as I've gone through my life in the academy is, you know, when you do brain research, you're doing generally research on brains that have broken. Uh, because we for humans in particular, we have a very difficult time going in and doing any type of experiments. You can do it in monkeys or used to be able to do it in monkeys, you can do it in rats, but you can't do it in people. And so you have to wait till someone's brain kind of breaks down and then you look at how it's broken and that will give you insight into how a whole brain works because nature breaks at the joints, that's yeah. the idea.
1: Hmm. So that, someone has a stroke or something and now they can only communicate through singing and uh, why in the world Why is, is that?
2: that? And then what's broken in their brain because then you can do a brain scan and see what's what's uh, where the dead tissue is. Um, And make some guesses about what that dead tissue must have been doing functionally so that someone could talk as opposed to just grunt or make noises or sing or whatever. And as I moved through my career, um, and what I did really was more theoretical, which is how I end up being in, in philosophy departments and science and technology studies departments. As opposed to doing bench science as I was interested in sort of the big theory behind things. How do we take all of these data and put them together into a coherent story? But as I was moving through my career, um, I recognized that uh, I was studying a lot of people with significant problems, but I wasn't actually helping them. And so I can write a lot of books. I can write a lot of articles and maybe five people, 25 people, 1,200 people read them But it's going to take a long time before there's any sort of trickle down effect between what I've written or what I've said in public and it actually making an impact in someone's life. Mm -hmm. So a few years ago, I started looking for a different opportunity um, that kind of melded the skills that I have in the academy with my desire to actually do something before I retire that I can look back on and say, hey, I did that. And so that's when I moved to Northern Kentucky University, because they started this Institute for Health Innovation, and they were looking for someone to run it. And part of what my job is here is actually um, walk in the walk, as well as talk in the talk. So I can talk about health innovation and what we need to make people better. But part of my job is actually going out in the community and helping make this a better place. And we probably all know that the health problems and challenges in Kentucky are especially bad. I think mm. we're currently ranked 49th in the country um, in terms really? of health outcomes. Yes, yes. I mean, thank goodness for Arkansas and Mississippi because <laughs> there are competitors in our race to the bottom. Um, yep, we're number one in wow. the country in cancer. We're number one in the country in heart disease. Um, we are fifth in the country in terms of overdose. But northern Kentucky, if it were its own state, would probably be ranked number one. Hmm. Um and so the the question is, how do I take everything that I've learned about brains and behavior and apply it in the real world so that I can affect change to the entire population? Mm, wonderful. So that's what I do.
1: That's wonderful. I mean, that's what um, much of this podcast is all about. And it's a big part of why I, as much as I like say physics or whatever, I I focus on life science stuff, hoping to make an impact in people's Terrific. lives and that sort of thing. So. So, yeah, so let's talk about uh, your work specifically here then.
2: Okay. What do you want to know? So
1: so you work with opiate and pain management?
2: I don't do so much pain management here. Um, Before I got into, well, maybe simultaneous, I don't know. I have have to go back and look at my CV. But I was, in both cases, Mm -hmm. um, pain disorders and addiction-type disorders. They're these chronic brain-based diseases that we really have no idea what we're doing in terms of helping people. And so chronic pain, for example, um, particularly lower back pain, we all know somebody who's got chronic pain and they will tell you like drugs don't touch it, aspirin doesn't touch it. I go to therapy. It doesn't really help. We don't have good mechanisms for helping these people. And part of it for that is that we have finally recognized that chronic pain is not acute pain that never goes away. It's something else because when you have chronic pain, it rewires your brain in a particular way so that it, it has cognitive and effective aspects to it that you don't find with just regular ordinary, everyday acute pain. Hmm. And you see the same thing with addiction, because we all know that on the one hand, uh, people who have substance use disorder consume, we believe, their substance, or at least initially because it makes them feel better, but then they will continue to consume, they will continue to engage in, from the outside, what looks like um, self-defeating activities, and they can't seem to stop, even when it's destroying their life. And of course, you know, it's not like suddenly they're gaga and they don't know that their life is being destroyed. So how do we help these people? And we don't have good therapies for that either, right? Mm. Because if we did, we wouldn't have the opiate crises that we have right now. Mm. And so in both cases, um, they're they're chronic illnesses that are associated with the rewiring of the brain in a very similar fashion. And in both cases, we don't have good therapies or treatments for them.
1: So... Give us kind of a neuroscience 101 of of what is happening in the what are these pathways that are being created? Are these is it almost like um, some sort of habitual, like learned behavior or something?
2: Well, it's. um, Let me take let me take chronic pain as as a case, so. We know, I mean, here's one way to understand what pain is. And this is, um, a viewpoint that's, that's not my own. It's expressed with, um, Vania Apkarian. And he has this idea that, that pain is not just like a thing. It's not one thing. Rather, it's a process. And it starts out when you know you're going to experience pain and you anticipate the pain. And um, if you think about your pain experiences, you know what I'm talking about. And I had one recently when I fell off my bicycle, although I won't tell you too much detail about that. But as I was going down, I know. Yeah oh, this is going to hurt.
1: I'm bracing myself just listening to this story. Right. And you
2: know, and so you're anticipating and there's like nothing you can do about it. Just got to wait for it, right? Yeah. And you slam your hand in the door and you think you you have this moment where it's like, oh, this is going to hurt. Yeah. And then you just wait. And sure enough, it really hurts. So there's the anticipation. Then there's the pain experience itself, right? That's the yeah. ouch part. And then afterwards, when the pain goes away, there's a relief. We actually experience some a little bit of joy, a little bit of happiness associated with the pain stopping. Mm-hmm. And so pain is now this three-part experience or this three-part process that we have in our brain. Hmm. Okay, so um, what happens in chronic pain is you never get to the relief part. You get stuck in the sensation part. Mm-hmm. But as you, as that sensation part continues to activate, as it were, it actually rewires other parts of your brain to be connected to the part of your brain that's responding to the pain. So, um, and the part that it, it rewires is the uh, prefrontal cortex. Which is our decision making mm-hmm. apparatus. And what, what we've seen is that people with chronic pain, I mean, you might notice if you know people with chronic pain that, that pain fills their life and it's really important to them in a way that even if you have extended chronic pain, you know, you break a limb and so for six months you're in pain, but it's not a chronic pain. It's just a long acute pain. You can go about your life and it doesn't fill your world in mm-hmm. the same way that it does with someone with chronic pain. And other people have noticed that people with chronic pain often don't seem, from the outside, it it appears they don't make good decisions relative to self-care or doing something about their pain. And that's because um, the part of their brain that deals with decision-making is literally wired into the part of the brain that's experiencing the pain. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't happen in um, people with acute pain. And you see the same sort of things with addiction. So you get the uh, reward system rewiring your prefrontal areas so that that affects your decision-making capability and you get then two behavioral outcomes from that one is kind of this obsessive seeking of the substance of choice which in many ways is comparable to the pain filling the world right so people who have substance use disorders really are um obsessed i'm going to use that word with the substance themselves and you can contrast that with someone like me, who I don't think I have a substance use disorder, but I really like chocolate. Mm-hmm. I really like chocolate. But I don't, I'm not sitting at this interview wishing I had a candy bar right now or something like that.
1: And so... Well, now, yeah, just a little bit. Not now even, that you've brought it up. No, come no, on. No, no. What are you into? Like a Snickers? <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right.
2: But the point is that I can really like something. And when I'm around it, I want to consume it, but it doesn't fill my world. Mm-hmm. But with people with um, addictions, it does fill the world in the same way, in the same way that pain fills the world of people with chronic pain. And then on top of that, you get this kind of obsessive seeking behaviors with people with addiction. So, And this corresponds to people who say, you know, my friend has chronic pain, but it seems like she's not always behaving rationally relative to her pain. She's not taking care of herself with respect to her pain. I think they're analogous to each other. And so you can have people who suffer addiction who are seeking their drug of choice to the exclusion of other things, you know, exclusion of eating, to the exclusion of bathing, to the exclusion of their loved ones. How does that happen? What well, happens because their brain is rewired now. Hmm. So they simply can't behave in the way they would have behaved had their brain not been rewired.
1: Hmm. So I I mean so this rewiring with the drug addiction, this is kind of the prefrontal cortex being um, hijacked to kind of pull the attention toward that substance. And and I mean, to me, that feels more like, um, you know, that's just like this drug's a reward, your family is a reward um uh, showering eating also rewards and the and the drug reward is just stronger and almost, the other rewards
2: but, fade
1: and the other rewards fade but i don't quite understand the the parallel with how pain is um rewiring the prefrontal cortex
2: well Maybe I'm not articulating this well. Um, I, I don't. I don't
1: think <laughs> you're doing anything wrong here. I, I'm not. I'm just. I'm just trying to get a right. clearer picture. Yes.
2: Yeah. So. So we need to think. Um, on the one hand, yes, we can talk about how um, drugs of choice become excessive rewards in people who have a disorder, but that doesn't actually explain all the seeking behavior. Mm-hmm. Just like. Even if I really, really like chocolate, that doesn't mean I'm going to tank my career by seeking candy bars as opposed to doing what I'm being paid to do. Mm -hmm. So there's something else going on with people who have addictions because they will engage in the seeking behavior to the detriment of everything else, right? So you might really love sex, but that doesn't mean you're you're still not going to brush your teeth or eat your food or something like that. And that's because you don't engage for, for people who have, say, a normal sex life, and they don't engage in the obsessive seeking behavior. So what's going on with rewiring, it's not just damping down, and actually, it's not at all damping down the the other um, things that give you reward and enhancing the reward itself. But rather, it's it's forcing you to single-mindedly focus on the thing that you want to the exclusion of everything else. So it's changing the way you pay attention. It's changing the way you think about things. It's changing then your behavior in ways that to people on the outside looks completely irrational. Mm. And that's why we talk about people with addiction. Oh, they have weakness of will. You know, if they could just pull themselves together and recognize what they're doing, they'd be fine. And the answer is no, because they literally can't do that. Because now the part of their brain that deals with planning and cognition and behavior has been hijacked in a very fundamental way. So the question is, how do we fix this? And what's interesting, to me anyway, is that when you look at chronic pain, uh, all these chronic sort of lifestyle-related illnesses, um, diabetes, adult-set asthma, uh, hypertension, addiction, chronic pain… They all have certain things in common, right? They all have a genetic component. They all have a certain neurophysiology. Um, they all are lifestyle associated, but they all have very similar rates of relapse. And so when you look at how often people with substance use disorders you know, go through treatment, they get better, and then they relapse and go back to their substance of, of choice. You compare that rate to a diabetic, who has their um, blood sugar levels under control, but then they slip up, they don't take their insulin, they eat the wrong thing, and so things get out of whack and they have to go get treatment, almost exactly the same rate Hmm. of relapse. Similar for people with um, asthma and other types of, of these sorts of complex chronic illnesses. So we have this whole family of illnesses that are associated with rewiring of the brain and behavior and lifestyle, that we have really no good way to treat because the problem, you know, in a nutshell, is we don't how we don't know how to manage compliance. We don't know how to get people to behave the way they we believe they should behave in order to get themselves healthy.
1: Hmm. So, when you talk about there being genetic genetic components, I'm wondering about the individual differences. Are some people just more? Uh, do they have a say prefrontal cortex that is more susceptible to this rewiring is there any connection with like any other like adhd or any other things like that 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 make it- that makes someone that you would be able to predict that this person would be more susceptible ahead of time to, say, a chronic pain issue or a drug addiction?
2: Yes, so that's a very good question, and I don't know that anybody has a good answer to it. I mean, I think what we can say is that it's clear there's a genetic component um, in that if your parents have addictions, it's much more likely that you're going to have an addiction as well, regardless of whether you're raised in your parental environment. So if you were um, shuffled off to foster care, or if you were adopted, or you know, you never knew your parents. So that's why we think there is at least some sort of genetic component, because we, we see these similar behavioral trends um, across generations, even when you control for environment. But that's not to say that people always end up being addicted to the same thing. So it's not like, well, my parents were heroin addicts, and that means I must be a heroin addict. You might end up, um, your drug of choice might be something else, or it might not be a drug at all. So, but I don't know, I don't know much more beyond that relative to the genetic component. I mean right now I think what people are most focused on is the interaction between uh, mental disorder and addiction. So it's very clear that um people who suffer from substance use disorder generally have co-occurring anxiety, depression um and the the similar sorts of issues there. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it seems to be also they are also engaging in self-medication, which makes sense, right? Because um you know, if you don't if you don't have some underlying emotional or psychological issue that you're trying to manage in some way, it's hard to see how you would get started down the path of addiction because it's, I know people talk about, well, one puff and you're addicted forever. That's not usually how it works. Um, So usually people take the substance and they get something out of it that they didn't have before. And generally, um, particularly with opiates, it's a masking of their internal pain. A lot of times they didn't know they had the internal pain because they've always been anxious and then suddenly they're not anxious anymore. And that makes a big difference to them. So Mm -hmm. then they do it again and then they start getting in trouble. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I I had a injury that I've talked about endlessly on the podcast. I broke both my feet once and one of my I had a couple of foot surgeries. I was laid up for like a year or so, but I had some opiates and stuff during that. It was never much of I I kind of felt like a oh, I could see how this could become a problematic oh, yeah. kind of thing, but it, I mean, as far as uh, I know, even in hindsight, reflecting back on it, it doesn't seem like, and I wasn't necessarily like using them super responsibly either. But one, one striking thing was just how much. Um, you know it didn't just help my foot pain. it also just made me feel like oh everything's gonna work out and like whatever like financial issues are being buried mm-hmm. with work or whatever else i I would become like really productive and uh, you know any depression issues or anything like that that I was susceptible to would also um go away and it was it was uh really interesting to be because the the kind of pain centers are. Are it's basically the same process as whether it's physical or psychological pain. Very similar, right? very
2: similar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, if you have physical pain, then you've got nociceptors being activated, right? Things on the periphery are coming up and saying something is going on with my tissues that you need to pay attention to. But certainly, psychological pain activates the same parts of your brain or sim- very similar parts of your brain once you get up into the brain itself. Mm. Yeah.
1: And it was, it's interesting the kind of, I'm, um, I like thinking about the kind of embodied cognition of it all as well. Mm-hmm. I, I distinctly remember um, <laughs> I had to like break my feet and I had to crawl down this mountain for a few hours. It was Ooh. not the best day of my life. No, I bet not. Um, and and I I remember you know I was in a tremendous amount of pain and everything, but um, I I was meditating quite a bit at the time. I, I think I was like handling it as well as a person um, could, but one thing that like i caught myself thinking that was just so strange and funny was that i found myself at one point i was like thinking about the political system <laughs> and the government and like how the whole world is it's it's all just broken and i and i'm like oh no that's not the world that's broken you're broken right now <laughs> right, and you're right. projecting that on 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 the world and um i'm i'm sure that must be happening quite a bit with chronic pain issues with substance abuse issues
2: yes although i would also guess that part of what you were doing if you're trying to get off a mountain with broken feet is you were trying to distract yourself from the pain so that you could do what you needed to do to get to the bottom of the of the oh, that's uh, mountain Um, because one thing we know about pain experiences is they're very malleable. I mean, right, that's what Lamaze is all about is – You mentally try to control your breathing and your attention so that you're not focused on the pain, so you don't feel it as much. Mm -hmm. And um, you can run this experiment on yourself. So if you're ever in front of somebody and you trip and you stub your toe, you want to be cool, you play it off, it doesn't hurt as much. But if you're at home watching TV in your sweatpants and do the same thing, it really hurts. And the truth is it really does hurt more. Because the way you're focused on the world and yourself is different. So you might have just kind of instinctively or intuitively known, if I can get myself riled up and really focused on something else, then I'm not paying
1: as much attention to my feet,
2: and that'll get me there.
1: Uh, I never thought about that before. Yeah, Um. (laughs) Because
2: it's probably the case that once you got help, your feet hurt much more than they did coming off the mountain.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I did feel like once I actually like got to the hospital and then had to wait through triage was it was when it c- really c- hurt. Yeah, because I thought like I'd walk in and be taken care of immediately. And when that wasn't the case, that's that's when it became yeah. pretty unbearable. Yeah, so you
2: get that disappointment feeding into your pain experience. And that's just like a double whammy. Yeah. Plus, you know, you're going to be cared for. So you don't have to engage in that self care anymore, Mm. and so you can just, you know, your mind can just let it go and let you experience the pain. Unfortunately, which is what happens. Yeah, so you are in a safe place to fall apart.
1: Yeah, yeah, huh? It it is. That is so fun. So another this is a weird overshare of mine but it's so it's so relevant um, I I sometimes get like just on my shoulder or whatever I'll just get these weird stray hairs that are like three inches long <laughs> yes. or whatever and I'll pluck them off and when you're talking about the process of pain it really is like this fun little micro ex- experiment of of the anticipation of like oh this is going to sting and then the and then the sharp acute pain of course and then immediately like i'll rub it quick and it's like the the relief and that relief does feel it's like almost like a drug and so what what is what's actually happening in the in the brain during those those processes, you can be a, a little jargony. I, you know, I, okay. I don't know how how specific necessarily you want to be, but my my listeners, this isn't their first time hearing about neuroscience. Okay, anything, so.
2: okay, so um, two of the primary regions that are engaged with pain processing, among others, are the nucleus accumbens and the insula, and it's their interaction um, along with other sort of um, upregulating and downregulating down-regulating influences, I think that really determines the magnitude and kind of the effective side of the pain. So the insula seems to be measuring the magnitude. How how bad is the pain? How big is the pain? And the nucleus accumbens um, and the anterior cingulate seem to be the regions that that are the actual pain centers. And so it's interaction of those two areas that, that give you the pain sensation. Now I've forgotten what your question was.
1: It, oh. Walking through the the process of the anticipation, of oh, pain, right, the pain right. itself, yes. Uh, which, which I mean, all of these things are blending together. They're yes, not, of course, they're not separate. Right. Um, and then and then the relief of the pain.
2: Yes, and so it's it seems to be all tied into your reward system. And so obviously the pain is something that's negative. So it's it's an anti reward. It's it's your body telling you well, we need to avoid this. Um, Abkarian's view is that one reason we experience pain is, is because we need to protect our damaged tissues, right? It draws our attention to it. We, we protect it. We nurse it. But then we also need essentially some reason for doing that, right? And it's the case that if we nurse something, we take care of something, the pain goes away. We get the, the boost of relief. And so that's your reward for engaging in the care that you needed to, to to manage the pain in your body. That's the basic idea. But of course, it's very easy for that system to get screwed up because it's not an individual system in the way, say, our visual system is in the brain. So we know like... Information comes in through the eyeballs it bounces to the back of the head. So if you lose the back part of your head, your occipital lobes, you're going to be functionally blind. But the pain system isn't like that. It's not a dedicated system. It's really distributed throughout the brain. It's a very, very old system that's then been co-opted by other parts of your brain. So the, the part of the brain that deals with pain is also the part of the brain that that deals with visual perception. So the insula can also measure how big a visual perception is. Um, it also is connected to our food center. So we don't like pain. We don't like foods. Same same areas of the brain light up. Hmm. Um, and, and so as a result of that, it's very easy for our pain experiences and our pain reactions to get distorted just because they're so interconnected with so much else going on in our
1: Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Teams. Now there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. Bring everyone together in one space with a new virtual room. Collaborate live, drawing, sharing, and building ideas with everyone on the same page. And make sure more of your team is seen and heard with up to 49 people on screen at once. Learn more about all the newest Teams features at Microsoft.com Teams. So, when someone's experiencing chronic pain, because I don't think that I have, I, I think I just had the kind of a, a long-term, long-acute, pain. long-acute yeah. pain, like you said, and I, I still have some soreness issues and every—I—I don't—I wouldn't consider that to be chronic. But I'm wondering a few things: Is it something that is chronic pain? Something that keeps on becoming? amplified as as that rewiring takes place it it becomes like you said with substances it becomes this obsession does does chronic pain if you have like a lower back issue or something is it is it the case that people just can't stop thinking about their lower back is it the case that um the they become more and more sensitive that that now like once they have a chronic pain issue someplace they become just hypersensitive to other things in the world as well what what's going on
2: right so it's it's not the case that for sort of garden variety chronic pain you become more sensitive to all types of pain It is the case, though, that it it does, as I said before, fill your world. So you are paying attention to that pain in a way that other people might be able to ignore a comparable type acute pain. But one thing that's interesting, I think, about people with chronic pain. So let's say you have chronic back pain. But now I'm going to overlay that chronic back pain with an acute pain. So I'm going to squeeze your arm really hard. Now, if you don't have chronic pain and I squeeze your arm really hard, um, then you have the pain sensation. And when I let go, you get the the reward relief. If you have chronic back pain and I squeeze your arm really hard and then I let go, there's no relief that shows up. So you're still, in a sense, no matter what, you're kind of dragged down by your pain. You're you're in that part of pain where you're focused on it. You're not seeking relief. You're not getting relief. Hmm. You're just focused on the pain. Hmm. And in fact, um, the data seem to suggest that this absence of relief response to disappearing acute pain is about 90% effective in um, being able to pick out brains that have chronic pain. So it's a very good indicator that you have chronic pain as opposed to just a long, drawn-out acute
1: pain. Hmm. Now, I kind of was under the impression that chronic pain and acute pain kind of utilizing kind of the same parts of the brain to activate but they are uh i'm not saying this the way that i want to but basically that that they inhibit one another you're not necessarily ex- experiencing both at the same time and this is, this is no
2: you would experience them both at the same time really yeah you know, I, I know that the old adage, right? If you don't want to pay attention to your shoes that are too tight, you wear really tight earrings, right? Yeah. That's what women were told, and that is true. You can use you can use um, one acute pain to cancel out another pain, but it's not like you they really cancel each other out. It's just that it gets harder to pay attention to both at the same time, or you can flip your attention. I see. Um, and so you can you might find like if you stub your toe and you don't want to scream out in public, you'll bite your lip, and that's that's a, a way to do it. But it's not like those pains cancel each other out. They're both there. It's just that you allocate your attentional resources to them differently, hmm. and so um, and so that makes you experience the pain less. So again, it's kind of like going back to the Lamaze technique. It's it's a way of changing what you're paying attention to to inhibit um, the actual pain sensation, hmm. because the, your prefrontal region, the attentional areas, can inhibit pain responses and that again is one of the challenges with people with chronic pain is they really lose that ability with the rewiring of the prefrontal areas
1: hmm. so you have pain and you go and get like a massage or something like that and i would imagine maybe uh, maybe my masseuse listeners will be upset with me but but they're not actually like fixing your lower back uh, uh, but but i i would think that some of the the stimulus is distracting in, in some way and then it seems like it has some sort of long lasting
2: sure well it depends on why you're experiencing your back pain so if it's if it's tight muscles that are causing the back pain and you go get a good, good massage and the massage causes those muscles to relax then indeed i would say it, it helps with your pain okay. Um,
1: I guess I'm just always a hair suspicious sure. of massages and acupuncture and that sort of thing, right? But, right. But it, I mean, it seems like it works very well for a lot of people. It
2: does. It does. Um, and and it's. I think it's a, a genuine help. It's not like a fake help. They're covering right. something up. Yeah. It really does diminish hmm. the pain response.
1: Hmm. So what what about opiates? Um, because First off I guess what are they doing to inhibit pain in the first place? I guess you covered that a little bit already but what are I guess I'd like to know what what issues we're facing in terms of um, you know some people are able to manage their pain really well with opiates some people aren't able to and and what other solutions are there? popping up? what? Why are opiates becoming this massive crisis right now? Anything that you can...
2: Sure. So um, if, we, if we go back to our, our tripartite view of pain, what the opiate does is it binds with the receptors in our reward system, so it gives us a happy response. So in effect what opiates are doing is they're not actually taking apart uh, taking away the paininess of pain but they're taking away the negative reaction to pain the oh that really hurts of pain. Um at least that's one way to think about it. Mm. Um and so you can you would still recognize if you if you're on opiates that you have a pain somewhere, right? Your your feet are damaged, but you just may not care in the same way, or may not bother you in the same way. You might feel okay about that. And that's because the opiates are binding in the reward center. And and that's kind of overriding everything else. Now, I, I can't tell you why some people develop problems with these substances, and other people don't develop problems with these substances. And I think part of that is because like most um, complex chronic illnesses, is it's a whole bunch of inter interacting causal factors that we haven't sorted out yet. So it might be that um, that what's going on that you discover when you take opiates because your feet hurt is that uh, you also had some underlying anxiety or depression or unhappiness that you weren't aware of, or even if you were aware of it, and the opiates take that away too. They make you feel good. And so then um, the opiates become a way for you to treat this other underlying condition that you discovered accidentally when you were trying to treat the physical pain that you had in your broken feet. Um, that might be one explanation. Um, I don't have good, and other people, they, they think it feels good they're not treating any deep underlying issue. Um, so then they start taking it recreationally and then then things can kind of, they take too much recreationally. Then they get in trouble because maybe they show up late to work. So now they're upset. Now they take it for, you know, to help mask that pain, the psychological pain. And then it just builds and builds. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know there's a genetic component thrown in, but I can't tell you exactly how that that interacts. So I don't know that we have a good complete story where we can separate all the causal factors out and say you know here is exactly why this person became addicted to this drug at this time under these circumstances we're not there yet
1: hmm. um i had a I had a interesting experience um regarding pain and this isn't uh, a, you know whatever this is this is not uh a, official scientific study or anything i'm not saying this is going to work for everybody or even that people should try this but uh, it was an anecdotally a pretty interesting experience where i had um i had had a, a limp um always if, mm-hmm. since my since my injury and um you know it's just like kind of always a little overly sensitive if if anyone ever like came close to stepping on that foot or anything like that. Just very, almost like a PTSD kind of. Sure. A, um, and I did, um, I had a intense psychedelic experience one time and I didn't really think about it. I wasn't focused on the pain or anything, but afterwards I like caught myself walking like a normal person for the first time since I had, since my injury and i was like oh i'm walking like a normal person and i'm but i'm and there's no pain or anything and what's and that's not a painkiller or anything like that this is it's more of like a neuroplasticity thing or kind of like a breaking up of a uh, of um habits or, or sure
2: sure i think that would be a good way to describe it i mean you just you got into the habit of protecting your foot Mm-hmm. Um, and then something, something caused you to break that habit, break out of it. And mm-hmm. and psychedelics could do it. I think if you were chased by a really scary person with a big knife, and so you you were running for your life, so you weren't really focused on like, is my foot actually hurting? Because you just need to book out of there. Then later you could look back and say, wait. My foot didn't hurt when I did that. That's I'm going fine. to be
1: an interesting part of a uh, of like a, a new progressive healthcare <laughs> movement. Where I you, hope you not. Yeah, uh, I'm not recommending people, people try this at home. <laughs> <laughs> Someone goes and chases you around for a bit and gives you a good scare, and then <laughs> and then right. you realize you can actually walk just fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what in in your view with with what You know, and this is, I imagine this is a big part of your work here. How in the world do you find, how does anyone figure out and find balance with this current climate of opiate use? I mean, I think in. Uh, you know, this is obviously ravaging the country. And you you talked about all of the harm it's causing here. But the other side of it is, and another thing you never hear about is, is I'm sure that there's plenty of people that were never going to have or uh, any issues or abuse opiates or anything and aren't getting what they need for pain management because of, you know, all of the other issues going on. And, And how do you, how what is being done to figure out w- what that balance is of like how are there more innovative ways of say testing whether someone is actually in need of and experiencing um pain or if they are potentially you know uh, trying to game the system and and uh, get over yeah. how it, it seems like such a incredibly tricky and nuanced puzzle.
2: It is. It is. And I don't know that people have really good answers. But I think what happened when opiates came on the scene, um, the pharmaceutical companies were pushing opiates because they claimed they were non-addictive. Mm-hmm. And it turns out they were grossly wrong on that account. But a consequence of that is that doctors were willing to prescribe them kind of willy-nilly because they were they believed um, incorrectly, that they were non-addictive, and so they could prescribe them for their patients and help their patients. So what happened is you got this tremendous, tremendous over-prescribing of opiates. So for example, um, even today, the average prescription that someone will get for an opiate for a, a, an acute challenge is a 30-day prescription but then when you look at how uh, how long most people take opiates say after they have a, a surgery or something like that it's about 3 to 5 days mm-hmm. and so here you have all of these drugs sitting right. around that can be used recreationally they can be sold they can be shared they can be abused you know all of this so that is one thing i think that that pushed the, the opiate trade along. Mm. And you combine that, I think, with some socioeconomic challenges, which is one of the reasons you're seeing the outbreak in, in rural America where, you know, people are feeling Um, neglected and passed over and they've lost their jobs and they don't have hopes, you know, so you have all of these stressors that are, that are put on them and suddenly they're given a drug for their chronic pain because they've spent their whole life doing manual labor and now their body's breaking down. So you can see how this would kind of snowball. This effect Mm -hmm. would snowball. So to answer your question, what are we doing about it? Well, most states now restrict how much a physician can prescribe an opiate, and it's three days or five days or something like that, just depending on where you are. Exceptions are made. So if, for example, uh, take an extreme case, you have terminal cancer, nobody's going to care how many how much opiate you prescribe that person, right? Because it's, it's going to help them feel better, um, but you're not worried about addiction at that point. Um, now, the challenge, of course, are exactly the people that you mentioned, the people who have chronic pain, and we're trying to use opiates to help manage um, that condition. And there, I think things just kind of divide. So on, on the one hand, I think we have people who've, who have chronic pain, who have addiction challenges. And the question is, what do we do about them? And then you have other people who have chronic pain who are able to take opiates to manage their pain, and they don't become addicted. And why We have these two categories. I don't think anybody's got a good story. But I think the really difficult um, challenge are people with chronic pain who have substance use disorder, and so they probably should not be taking opiates. However, I will also say that opiates are actually not very useful at managing chronic pain. They're very good. They can be very good for some people. And I'll just say some people because I've actually had opiates and they did nothing for me with respect to pain. I know some people-
1: It makes some people nauseous. Yeah. They respond really negatively. It, to I'm it.
2: one of those. It was like, to horrible. me,
1: you know, I feel bad even saying this, but to, I, I do an opiate and it's like a dream to me. It is a wonderful, wonderful <laughs> feeling. I, <laughs> yep. know, I know you're not really even supposed to say that public, but just on quite well, honestly, I mean, I think
2: that's right. And that's why some people get in trouble is they yeah. have that sort of reaction and then they want to uh, renew that reaction over right. and over again. Um, I've forgotten what I was going to say.
1: Um, just that some people oh. like yourself don't even, yeah, don't even don't respond. Even so don't you, respond So all. you So you were talking about it being um, probably an inferior treatment for chronic. It is,
2: a, it is an inferior treatment for chronic pain. On the other hand, though, we don't have any great treatments for chronic pain. I mean, people talk about cognitive behavioral therapy, which is really just a way of tricking you into living as though you don't have pain, but that actually seems to diminish your sensation of pain uh, just because your attention, you're learning to, f- relearning to focus your attention to something else besides your pain, to mm. the world outside, as it were, to your life. That's not an answer because that's not actually diminishing the pain per se, it's not addressing the challenges you have in your body, but it is helping you live your life um, more fully and more effectively with chronic pain. Mm. Uh, we don't have, uh, hypnotism actually I think Statistically, is the uh, treatment that works the best with chronic pain? Really? Yeah, yeah.
1: I've never been hypnotized before, and Mm. now I now I really want to. Yeah, you
2: should. You should. Have you? Been hypnotized? No, I haven't. But I've I've watched it a lot. So, which that's one reason I'm not going to be hypnotized. Thank you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what's What's the process? I mean, I've seen like the show in the in the park or, or right, whatever right. with the hypnotist. On stage. But what's uh, for uh, um, medical therapeutic hypnosis? What's what is well, the process?
2: In many ways, it, it's the same thing. You get someone to focus their attention on another object um, so deeply that they in a sense forget to pay attention to the rest of the world and then when you're in that state you can because they're paying attention to you and your voice you can talk to them about their pain responses and so you can talk to them that you know and explain that this the sensation you feel is not as big as it used to be and it's going away and then and it's gone and so um for some people that that really works not for everybody Uh, and not everyone can be hypnotized either um Hmm. And so, but the, but the point is, because chronic pain just isn't acute pain, we don't have good treatments for it, just like with addiction. Addiction is not just taking a substance because you like it, but it involves all this other stuff going on in the brain. We don't really have good treatments for that either. And then we have problems. Huh.
3: Hey everybody, it's Elaine Welteroth and I'm hosting a new podcast called Built to Last by American Express, where we will dive deep into the stories, history, and continued legacy of small businesses that shape American culture. Our debut season will focus on Black-owned small businesses that need our support now more than ever. In each episode, we feature the story of a Black business trailblazer that has inspired a modern Black-owned business. First up is Pinky Cole of Atlanta's food truck turned restaurant, Saletti Vegan. We'll also chat with Hanifa Muemba, the cutting edge designer behind the Hanifa 3D Digital Fashion Show. Plus, we'll check in with Issa Rae, our modern day Renaissance woman. We hope that it encourages all of our listeners to support these businesses as well as the Black-owned businesses in your own communities. Tune in for these amazing stories and others on Spotify, Apple. YouTube, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
0: It's JCPenney here, back with some great gift ideas for everyone on your list. And they're all available now at your local JCPenney or online. Need gifts for her? Check out our selection of diamond jewelry that's sure to put a sparkle in her eye. Or help her cozy up at home with pajama separates and super soft slippers. For him, try JCPenney's grooming products, like shave sets and trimmers. Or compliment his style with smart flannels and jeans from brands like Arizona, Levi's, and more. Also, stop by Sephora inside JCPenney to find top fragrances for both him and her. For the kids, shop this year's must-have toys and games for all ages. Or bring smiles to all with matching sleepwear sets for the whole family. And for everyone else on your list, share some warmth with a heated blanket, an ultra-cozy scarf, or let them decide with a gift card. There are so many ways to share the joy this holiday season, and so many ways to shop JCPenney. Visit a store near you, pick up curbside, or go to jcp.com. Joy, comfort, peace. JCPenney.
1: That is so interesting. So what if, I'm wondering, so say you do something like, maybe it's not as powerful of an effect as what I'm about to present, but say say I went in to have uh, go through hypnosis for say i i want to have like more confidence or something like that uh in in uh in social situations and i go in and they give me some coaching while i'm mm-hmm. uh hypnotized and then i become way too confident now I'm now I'm this jerk and and I'm like, can we go back and now I got to go and get rehipped you know, and regular is there is there any is there any danger like that of of pain and wh- where it could where, where there can be something or even with opiates where well opiates aren't eliminating the sense of pain The, the, the question is is pain is useful? And and helpful in, in many regards, right, right? And even even psychological pain is is often uh, anxiety, depression, many of those things can sometimes have some utility in them, and that maybe there are some changes you need to reflect on, or you need to be motivated to do your to do list or what have you. Is is there any danger with uh, hypno? I, Again, I know nothing about hypnosis right. of it of it going like too far or something.
2: I don't think so. I mean, not not with respect to treating pain. Um, and that's because I don't think it actually takes the pain away. Rather, it shifts your focus of attention, hmm. and so um, and so it's not like the chronic pain disappears. But again, it's just focusing your it's a little, the lamaze. Effect. It's focusing your attention and your emotional energy somewhere else, mm-hmm. so that diminishes your internal responses to the pain signal. And because of that, um, I think if you stubbed your toe, for example, then you would just feel the pain the way people normally feel pain because suddenly you're paying attention to that damaged toe. So it's it's a complex response. So so when you hypnotize somebody, um it really seems to be more an attentional process than than anything else.
1: But I thought cognitive behavioral therapy was sort of along the same lines it is. as well. So is there there's so it is kind of the
2: Well, it's it's maybe two different ways of getting at the, the, same, the end. same end. Yes.
1: Huh. But you're still experienced in the pain just not intentional uh, your attention is not there um in the same way so you're it's kind of not it's not invading your consciousness as much um i mean that seems like i mean isn't isn't life much about kind of finding the placebo that works for you (laughs) and like like i've been doing like a you know gratitude um journal or like little things like that at the end of the day kind of reflecting on things that i did accomplish or things that i went right or i'm grateful for at the end of the day rather than looking at all of the failure of my undone (laughs) zillion things on my to-do list that will never end and um and it does it does tend to influence my perception and make me like a hair more appreciative throughout my everyday life and and um focus on those things a, a little bit better and Uh, or or a little bit more focused on those more positive things. It seems to keep me motivated more. But there's also this quality of it that's like, well, it's not real. It's like a trick in some way. You know, it's still it's still the same world, but I'm just perceiving it differently. Sure. And, uh, so, am I kidding myself? You know. It,
2: well, you can think of it maybe as um, influencing your habits of mind, right? Mm-hmm. So you know people who always see the glass as half empty. You That's know right. other people who see the glass as half full. It's the same glass. You can see both points of view. Right. And so you're just developing a habit of mind where you see the glass as, as half full. Mm -hmm. That's what you do with your your evening journaling and thinking positive things and affirmative thoughts. So it's not like you're faking it or you're convincing yourself of something that's not true. You're just reinterpreting the same stimuli.
1: And that's a little bit what's kind of happening with pain.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think that might be a, a way to describe it.
1: 'cause i I do I love a good placebo. I wish there was like a <laughs> pill that could reliably deliver the placebo effect uh, but I, I like that you could like put a cream on someone's hand and tell them that this is a painkiller, so now when I'm gonna poke you, it's not gonna hurt as bad and even though that wasn't actually yes, anything yes, the, you can do the that. the anticipation right. is is lessened and the and the pain is is less so is that where you see a little more hope going forward in the future in terms of pain management or do you think that science is going to stumble upon some perfect pain reliever drug that also isn't addictive i don't see that i don't happening see that in the, happening in the near future Not in <laughs> anyway. my lifetime
2: yeah no no, I think I really think what needs to happen is that with a substance use disorder and with chronic pain and with all these other chronic illnesses, I think we're just going to have to recognize their underlying complexity. And that means we're not going to have a simple solution. We're not going to have an easy Band-Aid mm-hmm. for people with these types of disorders. So we need to stop looking. Stop looking that way and recognize maybe that for now, the best we can do is recognize them as chronic conditions and treat them as such. And so this, you're going to have to manage this over a, li- a lifetime, just like you might have to manage other things over a lifetime, which is not a happy message to deliver. Mm. But I think it's a realistic one for where we are. And I think it would help in in some of the treatments, particularly with respect to substance use disorder, where people have this idea that you go through treatment, you stop using, um, and then if you relapse, it's a failure, right? You failed yourself, you failed your family, you're weak, as opposed to recognizing, no, it's just part of the illness. And generally, it's a 20-year process before you come out the other side. So our goal is to keep you alive for the 20 years so that you can emerge, as opposed to dying from a fentanyl overdose or something like that along the way.
1: Mm. All right. Well, before I get to my last question or two, I, I each week I have my guest plug a charity of their choice. Did you have one in mind?
2: Well, so I'm an employee of Northern Kentucky University, which is a state institution, and we accept all donations of awesome. any way, shape or form. But if you're not interested in giving to NKU, I would encourage you to give to any educational institution of your choice. People complain that uh, the cost of higher education is too expensive. I don't know if I can get on that bandwagon because I feel like I have a deeper understanding of how things are financed and not being financed these days, Mm -hmm. but any scholarship dollars you can give will help educate a young mind who might be able to solve the pain problem or the addiction problem.
1: Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Um, All right. So the the probably last thing that I want to ask you was, are there any demographics that are more susceptible um i guess in my mind i'm kind of thinking um in terms of age is uh, is there any kind of because when i think about younger people i think of like well they get their hands on a few extra pills there might be some um kind of hedonic abuse there but then i'll think of you know people like my grandparents or something like that that also just are like well if a doctor says it's okay it must be okay and and kind of they fall for that and kind of get themselves i see some older people get themselves in trouble that way um and who knows if that's age or just generational or cultural or uh or whatever but is is there are there any uh i guess you said uh you know socioeconomic issues
2: right so uh certainly It seems to be the case that opiate addiction is more male than female, Mm -hmm. and until recently, um, the the age range where people were at least running into trouble – can't say that's when they started abusing the drug, but their overdosing and dying was an older demographic. So it was, you know, over 35, 35 to 55. And P- and part of that- Oh,
1: no. Yes. All of the substance abuse problems I've had in, in my life, and you're telling me now I'm in the worst age, No, right? no. <laughs> um,
2: and part of that was because the, the opiate um, epidemic got started by overprescribing opiates ah, to people with um, pain issues. Right. And that generally happens when you're- heading toward middle age or in middle age. But I what see. we're seeing in Northern Kentucky is that that age demographic of when people are overdosing and dying, becoming younger and younger. Mm. And so that's telling us that the uh, abuse is starting at a younger and younger age. Because generally, you have to use an abuse for a few years before you start overdosing. Not always, but usually it, it, it follows a, a particular path. Mm-hmm. So now we know that people are starting to use um, in middle school and high school. And so what we're seeing is the second generation, I think, of the opiate epidemic, because originally maybe mom and, or dad got prescribed these drugs, and that set off a chain of unfortunate events. Now their kids were raised in and around this this drug of abuse. They see that as a way to cope with problems, and so they're more inclined to abuse the drug at an earlier age. And so it's a shifting demographic, I think, depending on how people are accessing the drug and why. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. So, uh, well, I mean, I mean, I know it's just interesting. In general, people love this topic, but it's just so important. And It is. You've uh, done a wonderful job of, of clearly explaining a complicated, nuanced uh, issue. So, uh, thank you, Valerie Hartcastle for joining me today. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Next week on the Here We Are podcast, talking with assistant professor in the Department of Marketing at UC Cincinnati, Ryan Rahino is joining us. And we have a fantastic conversation about marketing. We had some free will conversation slip in there. So uh, I, I, we didn't have a choice in the matter. We had to talk about it. Ha, yeah, 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 yeah. And we had a really before I started this podcast and and really got into all of this stuff even years before I started the podcast, I would have never thought marketing would be something that I'd be so fascinated by, but man, it tells us so much about ourselves. And, you know, because there's incentive and there's like clear, I think with that clear incentive of like, this can, this can help me put more money in my bank or spend better or whatever people just tend to um respond to that a little more and there's just more um money involved in that research or whatever but but one of my most fascinating subjects to talk about always so make sure and tune in for that next week i've been adding man guys i've i have not had time to to give you updates on my life i'm hoping to soon i have been crazy busy had a blast in europe and now back into reality and reality is harsh but i've had a whole bunch of things come up and am way behind on some of my bookings and everything with stand-up science however my september is packed to the brim so if you take a look at shanemoss.com you'll see i'm uh, i'm going through time that you're listening to this i I have a couple gigs in um in the northwest still but then i'm i'm gonna be all through the midwest fort wayne lansing kalamazoo royal oak cleveland over to washington east coast richmond Raleigh, greensboro Asheville, athens and atlanta and then after that i haven't i haven't started filling these in yet but basically routing driving gigs from Atlanta, all the way back to Wisconsin for November. It's looking like I may be doing the Boston Comedy Festival this year, and and a um, few things, and then I'll keep you updated with the tour routing after that. But um, at the moment, I've I've uh, just been so swamped, so busy. Uh, things are going good, and uh, I'm excited to tell you more about them, about the ups and the downs. There's been there's been both of late but um yes excited to fill you guys in more but um if you've if you've been digging my um my longer little bonus content at the end awesome uh hoping to get back to that next week and i've just been frantically like barely finding any a few free minutes to record these let alone think about what i'd even say with bonus content but more coming uh, next week, I hope. So make sure and keep tuning in. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites.